When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Uh, Robert Bob Champion, MBE, born the 4th of June, 1948 in Gisborough, North Yorkshire in England. What was like, uh, life like growing up for you, Bob? Oh, absolutely fantastic, let's be honest. Um, the only thing I had to do was go to school, and I wasn't that keen on that, to be honest. Um, I suppose I started riding when I was about four or five years old. Well, Dad, so was it out on a, Did you live on a farm, or what did your father do? Well, Dad was a professional huntsman, and my mother was from a farming family, and um, I suppose, you know, horses were always about, and uh, ponies came along, and... Um, I can always remember the first day Dad said I was going to ride, let's be honest, and um, he stuck me on the pony, and I must have been riding it for about three minutes, and he decided it was time I started jumping. And to this day, I can remember him pulling out a ladder, chasing me over the ladder. I jumped the ladder, fell off the other side, and a lot of nettles, and I didn't think that was the game for me. (laughs) You fell into the nettles. (laughs) Your dad was called uh, Bob uh, as well, and, um, and I mean, he'd already had a pretty extraordinary life. He was a, a, an ex-soldier, and not just one who sat around painting painting stones in Catterick, was he? No, he wasn't. He did the, D-Day, the D-Day landings, and, um, you know, he got through that and um, got through to Har- Arnhem, I think it was, and um, he got shot there, but thankfully he lived or I wouldn't have been here. No, he was wounded at Arnhem, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. Tell us about your mum, Phyllis. A great lady, mum. Um, you know, great mother, great cook, and um, you know she died a couple of years ago, um, well over ninety. And um, she had, a, as they say in cricket, a good innings. Then she had a terrific innings and a good life and a good life. Yeah. yeah. And um, my sister Mary and I were very lucky to have her. Um, you also, I mean, of course, I know Derek Thompson very well. I've worked with him on Channel Four. I've worked with him here at Talk Sport, the racing commentator. I think his family were close to yours. Is that right? Yes, um, Tomo and I and his brother Howard um, were the greatest mates from about the age of six, I should think, and um, we're still great friends. Um, I see a lot of Derek. Um, I only live two miles away from him, so I go racing with him quite a bit. Hard and, luck, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, well, hard luck. Then, but he's all right. You don't know the real Derek. Um, no, no. Um, when he's on his own with me, he's a really good guy. <laughs> no, he's, Not, great. he's yeah. great. He's great fun to broadcast with as well because he, yeah. he he has that enthusiasm. The modern word is passion for things. He has that enthusiasm for things that rubs off whether you're like me. You know nothing about the horses. You Just him being so excited about them rubs off, doesn't it? Um, you, uh, you, you, you mentioned school. How did your education go, Bob? Uh, I wasn't thick, (laughs) but um, I used to take off, you know, a lot of Thursdays and maybe Mondays as well. But I was very, very fortunate. I had a really good form master, Mr. McKenzie, who loved racing and um, anything to do with field sports. 
um, Mr. McKenzie was involved with. And I used to go on a Friday morning, if I'd taken Thursday off, with a letter from Mum saying, poor little Bobby's had the flu again. He'd grab hold of me at lunchtime and ask me what sort of day I'd had and uh, was I racing the weekend. And um, the thing I always admire about Mr. McKenzie was that, you know, you used to get your reports at the end of the year, how many days you'd had of school. I'd never had a day off school in the whole year. You know, every other kid had, but I hadn't. Um, he was a great man. Well, listen, um, it's in your, in your mid-teens at about 15 that I guess things start to get more serious. Um, you start to develop as a jockey. By, do you, go to your, you have to leave home and go much further south to your, your Uncle Arthur. Yeah, I did. When I was, you know, I'd been born in June, I could leave um, school at 15, and yeah. um, I left home at 15. Uh, just 15, actually, and uh, moved south. And um, Where was that? Um, in Wilkshire, near right. Westbury. And um, to ride his point of pointers and work on the farm. But I did go to e- evening classes at Trowbridge. Engineering, is that right? Engineering. Yeah. I'm an engineer. And passed that with flying colours, actually. What does it mean, engineering? What, 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 well, can, you, what can you do for me, Bob? Well, basically, I could use a lathe. You name it. <laughs> I could weld. I could do fix a car. Um, right. I could do most things engineering. And can I, you still do it? No. <laughs> I've never used it no, since no. I've ever left the college. But, um, you know, I could have done gone into the business and I maybe could have done well. Well, you're doing point-to-pointing for the ignoramuses among us um, explain the difference between point to point riding and national hunt riding well point to point is for amateurs um, it's an yeah. amateur sport it's still a very very big um, yeah. sport in the country and um, a lot of people go and um, it's for amateurs and um, you know a lot of x-race horses or in the old when I started point to point and young horses went point to point and ended up being sold to go national hunt racing and um, had my first ride at Lark Hill actually and um Fell at the last fence. I did have a winning chance, actually. I might have wrestled it and to the ground. And your very, very first point to point. Yeah. You fell at the last, Bob. Yeah. yeah. And um, I can remember lying on the ground thinking, was that the game for me? But thankfully, I rode the horse a week later, and he went and won. So that was me. Can hooked. you remember what the horse was called? Home Court. Home Court. Yeah. Yeah, an 11 year old mare, I think it says here in front of me. And she and wasn't you, very big. Um, Bob, you'd been making your name along with, there at the, uh, the, the point of pointing, and in August of 1967, you went to join Toby Balding's uh, stable to become, uh, I guess, a more professional kind of jockey. Um, what kind of experience was that? Oh, fantastic experience. Um, a friend of mine, um, Peter Calver, who used to ride point of pointing, who knew Toby very well. Um, suggested I went there. The real reason he did was that was because I was stealing his rides Uh point-to-pointing. He thought he'd get me out of the way. But um, I went to Toby's. It was a great move for me, let's be honest. I wanted to be a pro. And didn't go that great, actually, because the first day there, um, they put me on a horse, it reared over on top of me and broke my ankle. So that was the first day. Day one? Day one. <laughs> first minute, virtually, about seven o'clock in the morning. Which ankle was it, left or right? Left one. Yeah, because of course, when you're, when you're, if you've had a full life as a professional national hunt jockey, you've probably broken both ankles and probably every other bone in your body by the time you get to talking to me. I've done a few, I yeah. promise you. Well, we're going to hit, well, your medical history is very much part of this story, I think it's fair to say. Um, uh, so you you recover from your from your injury and, and I guess you go on to make uh, stop riding for Toby Bald. And I want to ask you about that though because you're five foot nine. Um, that doesn't make you're not from land of the giants or anything, but that is already I suspect going to be a problem for you because you, you're a normal sized man, Bob, and that you've got to make weight all the time. How difficult is that? That was very hard. Let's be honest. I did struggle and. Um, 
I did make one big mistake early on at Toby's, and um, uh, Captain David Chesney used to be in the army, and um, he was a captain, I suppose. Yeah. But um, <laughs> you know, and he used to ride out, and um, he suggested a few of us went um, to the army and trained with the army, and um, you know we did all the what the army do. Yes. And um, God, I was fit. But it bulked me up. Uh, well, uh, muscle is twice as heavy as fat, isn't it? That so was the, it, yeah, yeah. That was it. And that was the worst thing I ever did in my life, actually. It put an extra seven pounds on me, which I couldn't get rid of. And um, so that made life a little bit harder. Um, but I was fit. I'll give him that. Well, listen, we're, among many other things we'll talk about later on in, in the show, we'll talk about the extremes that people went to to lose weight in those days for your, uh, your, your, your chosen profession. And why don't we... Um, we've heard already about the Thompson family. Why don't we get a view of what kind of young jockey you were and young man you were from, I guess, if you say it was a friend uh, and a lifelong friend, also from reading your book, a sparring partner in the more exciting parts of a young man's life. I'd like to say we're joined on the line by Howard Thompson. Hello, Howard. Hello, Danny. How are you doing? Well, I'm very, very well, Howard. And uh, I've got Bob Champion sat in front of me here. Um, oh, yes. a, a very, a very, right. a very neatly dressed and, and composed, a rather avuncular figure, if you wouldn't mind me saying it. Is is that what uh, yeah, he was always yeah. like? I'm just worried now. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, he, he, he's always been a smart, uh, smartly dressed turnout fellow. Yes, I mean, you know, we were sort of, um, we got used to it going hunting. We, yeah, you had to be smart out hunting, and uh, otherwise, you know, you, you didn't look out of place. So yeah, he's always a smart lad. Yeah. The, sto- the stories, of course, that we're going to hear about about, about his uh, his life um, is is now part of the, the legend of, of British sport. Um, did you know even then though that he was going to be a good jockey? Well, I don't really think he wanted to be a jockey at first. I always thought he wanted to be a wrestler. Why? An wrestler. Why? Well, <laughs> well. It's it's a long story, but the kennelman at the the kennels where Bob used to live with his, you know, mum and dad when they were uh, uh, huntsmen from the Cleveland Hounds, was dead keen on wrestling, and he used to show Bob all the holes, and Bob and he used to do all the wrestling on the lawn, and of course every Saturday night after hunting, Derek, Bob, and I all used to go along to Ferris Street in Middlesbrough, which has been long since knocked down, and see all our famous wrestlers, and we loved it, you know. Who was your favourite, Bob, among the wrestlers? Oh, Jackie Pallow. <laughs> oh, Jackie, Mr TV Pallow. Yes, yeah. that's the man. And, of course, we, 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 only in the last month we've lost uh, Mick McManus as well. Yes. Who would yeah. have been his great rival yeah. well, at the time. And um, I have to say, Howard, and again, I'm looking at the two of you as two sweeter gentlemen in the, in the shall we say, the autumn of their years. In, in Bob's book, um, A Holiday in the Early 70s in Ibiza, it sounds like a tremendous bacchanal to me. I'm sorry, I'm at Nottingham Racecourse. <laughs> <laughs> so you're avoiding the question about chasing girls in Ibiza. Oh, I didn't get to Ibiza. That's Derek you want to speak to. Oh, is that right? I've got it wrong then. You, you missed out there, my friend. You really missed out. Yeah, but I saw them when they came home. And what kind of state were they in? I hadn't slept for about 14 nights. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think they'd enjoyed themselves. And what's, not, what's nice is the two of you appear, of course, to have kept a boyhood friendship going throughout the ups and downs of, of eventful lives. Yes, it's been really good. Yeah, we're uh, we're still into horses, and it's um, it's been rather nice. You know, it's 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 amazing, really. You um, know. And in view of the fact that I'm I'm not so desperate to hear about the next train leaving for Mansfield, I think we'd better leave it there. Mm-hmm. Say goodbye to Howard. Thank you very much indeed, Howard. See you, mate. Okay. Good luck You're today. Very
Oh, cheers. I'm sorry, it was Derek who went on the holiday. I was desperate to get to that holiday. It turns out it's Derek who's on the holiday <laughs> with you. I mean, you turned pro, um, Bob. Can you remember how, how good your early experiences were as a, as a young rider? Um, yeah, I turned pro. Um, well, I was an amateur, and um, the jockey club turned me pro. Said I was um, having too many rides as an amateur. Oh, yeah, after 25, you, you, can't, you can't hide behind that, your amateurism anymore, the, can you? That was it. And um, You don't get the allowance anymore either, so your weight becomes even more of a problem. Yeah, that was the problem. Um, but... Um, so my first ride was at a course called Y, actually, as a professional, a course called um, Hidden something or other, and um, it went and won, and so that was a great first ride as a pro, but um, I had two rides that day for Toby, and um, looking back on it, I think I should have won on the second one. I finished second, and... Um, you know, you always are critical of yourself, but um, maybe I should have won. I'm not so sure. I mean, you 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 rode 15 winners in 68, uh, 69, and then you say you were forced to go professional. Can you remember your first? Um, I mean, obviously you do. You had another. Um, uh, uh, I mean, another ankle injury after that. I mean, what, what, let me just ask you about that. Do do jump jockeys have to just forget the fact that you're going to get smashed to pieces at various times in your life? Because it's a litany of, of injuries. And let's be fair, one of the very earliest guests on this show for this particular show was A.P. McCoy, who is a genius at the game. And, I mean, nothing short. I'm sure you understand. Oh, absolutely fantastic. There's never been yet, one like him. And yet he gets, he's had every bone in his body broken. So no matter how good you are at it, you're going to get hurt. Yeah, you know, if you're going to be a jump jockey, you've got to go in and you know you're going to get hurt. The thing we always used to think... Um, you're only as good as your last ride, let's be honest, and um, you're always glad to get in the car to go home at night. And, um, you know, your friends got hurt, and I've known people killed as jockeys. And, um, you know, it is a dangerous occupation, but everybody out there actually loves it. I mean, on top of uh, these early years, you're, you're doing okay, but you're not setting the houses on fire, and then nope. you get hurt again. <laughs> Did you ever think, I've made the wrong decision here, I should do something else for a living? Um, of course you do. You know, you Back start to the lathe for you. Yeah, of course you do. <laughs> and um, I kept thinking, you know, I must be mad, I'm going nowhere. Problem is, I lost my claim too quickly. and um, This is the claim to the allowance yes, for, for and, the younger riders. Yeah. yeah, and I lost it in about eight months, and um, it was the worst thing I could have possibly done. And didn't have the experience of the top boys at, the, at level weights virtually, and um, it was a struggle. And um, I ended up leaving Toby's and um, moved on. And um, a man called Monty Stevens was the man that got me going. I must admit, um, he was a really great man, um, self-made man. Bought a farm to Bill Swindon, and um, bought a place called Luckenham Park, and. Um, well, we'll, we'll come back to Monty in a second yeah. because the, also because it, it's about this time in the, in the, at the turn of the sixties, seventies, early seventies, you start to go to Aintree for your first tastes of what would become a very famous place for you, the Grand National. Uh, I think let me get this right. You ran the first one time in nineteen seventy one on a, on a horse called Country Wedding. What do you remember about that event? I can always remember that. Um, she was a small mare. Um, she got qualified for winning about the worst race at Devon and Exeter that ever was. Um, she wasn't very quick and she wasn't the best of jumpers. And, um, so perhaps not best suited for entry. Not really. <laughs> and um, I got down to the start thinking, well, I'm a professional jockey. You better start thinking professionally. And I looked around and I saw Gay Trip had won the race the year before. I thought wherever Terry Biddlecombe went on Gay Trip, I would follow. 
and tracked it down to the first fence. First horse to fall, gay trip. First person to be brought down, Bob Champion Country Wedding. So I wasn't quite as clever as I thought I was. You, you, so you, you did, I mean, you, you fell over another horse at the very first fence. Yeah. yeah. OK, yeah. so you might have been forgiven for thinking that the Grand National was not going to be a place of triumph for you with a start like that. Well, definitely the first one. <laughs> yeah, what about uh, what about any other early uh, early rides in the Grand National that you can remember? Um I suppose the um, my third ride in it was on a horse. Because you rode Country Wedding again, didn't yes. you? Yes, 71, 72. It fell at Valentine's. Yeah. I did well to get over beaches. But, okay, uh, well done, Bob. I yeah. was really chuffed with myself. Um, my third ride was in the Crisp Red Rum National, I think one of the greatest nationals ever been run. And um, I rode a horse called Hurricane Rock, 250 to 1 outsider, and um, jumped well. Um, I jumped the last fence in third place, finished fifth, um, ran the horse ran better in its ability really I think that was the fences which it loved and I can still think that was my greatest feeling and it's definitely over the national um, fences until I won of course yes. but um, you know I can still remember the race and um, well of course that, that 73 one was was one yeah. of the great horse races yeah. ever as Chris yeah. carrying about a, a weight of a grand Twelve piano stone. on his back yeah, yeah. that's it yeah. um, it failed eventually to hunt yeah. down red rum yeah. those of us who don't really understand how the candy, handicap works yeah. always think that that just doesn't seem fair that a horse should be asked to go yeah. to go like that well listen we're getting to grips now as you're getting into your stride as a professional jockey you're listening to my sporting life on the on here on Talksport, Bob, you described um, how, how you know you find yourself leaving the balding uh, stable and in the early seventies becoming a freelance. Although you wrote a lot, wrote a lot for a man called Monty Stevens, as you say. But um, freelance jockeying, it strikes me as a very difficult life. How does that all work? How do you get enough work to keep body and soul together? Well, it was a struggle to begin with, but I was quite fortunate actually because um, when I left Toby's and went freelance. Um, good friend of mine, Jim Old, had just started training and David Ellsworth had just started training and um, Patrick Haslam. And I rode, I think, their first winners. And um, so I was picking up rides everywhere and I started riding for Ken Condell a bit and other people and um, had fantastic season um, as a freelance, I must admit. And then Monty Stevens came along and... Um, I asked him, you know, if I could ride out there one day. I didn't know um, he had any jumpers, actually, but I was wanted somewhere to ride out to get mm-hmm. fit. And the second day there, um, he offered me a retainer. And I can always remember um, I'd been there about three or four days and you asked the lads in the yard about, a bit about the governor and they kept saying, um, you know, Monty's real passion in life was pigeon racing. And um, I'd going in to have breakfast I was going to ride at Devon that day and for him and um, I saw this pigeon flying around not wanting to go in the coop and um, I go, go in for breakfast and um, nothing said so um, I just come up with this crack I said governor when I came in I saw this pigeon flying around not wanting to go in the coop and I'll always remember him um, looking at his watch came went out came back in picked up the 12 ball went back out bang came back in, put the tag in the clock and said, that should have about won. You better do the same this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. So I don't know if he shot the pigeon or not. I just brought a tag in, but he put me on a warning, I tell you. Absolutely. <laughs> um, this is, I mean, I guess when you were with Monty, before you link up with Josh Gifford, um, this is where you're making the real transition from a boyhood, a horseman, if that's the yeah. right phrase, yeah. to becoming a professional jockey. When, when did you feel you'd become a, a jockey? In, I mean, because... 
you're an amateur rider, you were a huntsman already. When do you feel that I am now, that's, here's me, here's Bob Champion, I am a national hunt jockey? Um, I'll tell you what I used to do. I used to ride all the summer, I used to ride up for Paul Cole, a flat trainer. Right. And um, I was riding with, um, you know, Robert Edmondson and all those champion apprentices. And I think that did me an awful lot of good, sharpened me up. And um, so, I, you know, every day I wasn't schooling, I used to go and ride out at Paul Coles. And the breakfast was very good there as well. So, um, do you do you ever do you ever envy the flat jockeys? I mean, they're not in such a dangerous thing. They they ride in very. If you're any good, you're in very glamorous races. Do you, do you envy the flat jockeys? I suppose um, all jump jockeys would have liked to be in a flat jockey. Is that right? You think so? Uh, in a way, yes, because um, they earn a little bit more money and less danger. But when a flat jockey has a fall, it hurts. I promise you. But God, they work hard now. Um, they're doing two meetings a day. They start about five o'clock in the morning, and they're lucky to finish by uh, midnight. And um, and they and also seven to be days even a week. lighter as well, don't yeah. they? In some uh, ways, yeah. yeah. Well. It's seven days a week for them. So God, they work hard. Well, as you say, you, by the early seventies, you're becoming um, not just competent, but you're establishing your reputation as a as a tough and consistent rider. You won. You probably know this. You won twenty nine races in 1972, 73, and. Um, you started the next season even better. You were the leading jockey for a few weeks in the stable, in the in the, in the tables, um, and then you'll join, you join. Gives you a chance to link up. I think with one of the legends of British horse racing at that time, Josh Gifford. Tell us about that. Well, Josh, um, you know, um, tremendous man. Let's be honest. Um, it started. Um, he asked me to ride one at um, Kempton Boxing Day. I think it was a three-horse race. Um, Mayor called Claire Dorn, not the best jumper in the world, and. Um, Tony Grantham, who used to be the Royal Jockey, used to, owned it. And, um, you know, I went to Kempton, a three-horse race, let's be honest. We went no gallop. I think it was myself and um, Johnny Frankham and Jeff King. And we've hack-cantered over the um, first two and three-quarter miles or whatever it was. And um, the race had to start sometime, and it started after the second last. So there's three of us going about 180 miles an hour over the last fence. The speed we were going, something had to turn over, and it was me. But I can always remember lying on the ground thinking of excuses. And the next thing I saw, the boss standing above me, horse in his hand. Do you mind getting up and jumping on this horse and cantering by the post for the third prize money? But the thing I'll always admire about Josh was that he did ask if I was all right before he threw me on. 99.9 would have thrown me on with a broken neck, but he did ask if I was all right. I mean, that partnership with Gifford lasted five years and you you moved to uh, the village near Hungerford in 1977 as all part of that. Your weight issues continued, Bob, and I know that you took drastic measures in the mid-70s to try and deal with that, um, including visiting um, a, a doctor I think would be now would be regarded as notorious for his, how can I put it, unorthodox slimming methods. What happened to you? I think he got warned off, actually. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, his methods were he gave you an injection and some tablets to Do you take. know what was in the injection? I have not got a clue. I don't know. Uh, somebody, one of the jockey, told me about him, and so I went up there and right. think it would help, and... Um, had this injection and left in a park Mackay in Harley Street where the doctor was. Of course, they're all in Harley Street. Yeah, they are. They? Yeah, <laughs> you've got it. And, um, you know, I came out and I 
sweating's pouring, I'm passed out on the pavement. It's the only ever day in my life a traffic warden didn't do me for... Um, they saw how ill I looked and um, and I sat in the car for about two hours. And you've also got a course of tablets. I think it probably amphetamines, aren't they? I don't know what there was, but, but I was just high. It was just... Um, it was horrendous. And I took them for three weeks and I can remember I rode a few winners and I don't even remember riding the winners, you know. It was just... And I thought, I can't... My weight was good, I'll give it that. Yeah. But... <laughs> I just stopped them, you know. I couldn't take him. I'd have been dead, I think. Uh, so it got to the stage where I think if you were if you were asked to ride at less than say ten and a half stone, you needed a few days warning. I mean, was that because you wanted to take? Did you take more of those drugs, or did you do other things to try and keep the weight down? Um, you know, we were stupid those days. The jockeys are a lot more educated nowadays on um, nutrition. But um, you know, we used to eat and um, have some ex um, ex lax or some laxative of some sort or wow. pee pills or. Both sometimes. Diuretics, uh, all those things. You yeah. name it, yeah. we'd take it. And, um, you know, it wasn't good for us, let's be honest. And um, do they, 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 feel... they don't do all that now, do they? They must have a more controlled regime now, the jockeys. Oh, yes, they are, because the jockeys are dope tested now, anything that would yeah. come out, and um, which is better for the jockeys, let's be honest. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, it's a very unfortunate if, yeah. you, if you're losing a career because you're too heavy. Yeah. But the fact that you shouldn't be a jockey if you're too heavy, that's just not the way the game works, is it? No, it isn't. And, um, you know, when you used to have a fall... Um, I've, I've, I've taken diuretics and oh, God, it used to knock your kidneys about. It hurt, and thankfully, I got some sense in my brain and um, started eating sensibly. And um, but, but you know, I used to spend twenty-four hours a week in the sauna every week if you added all the hours together. Your skin was clean, but but very tired. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> let's let's get a, another view of your uh, life as a as a person in the racing game, Jim Old. Is a horse racing trainer, of course, and uh, they were st- you and he were stable lads together. If I'm going, it's another lifelong friendship. Like I say, we're joined, hopefully not from Nottingham Railway Station, by Jim Old. Good, hello, Jim. Hi there. Uh, hi, Jim. Never heard, you? Non- never heard such nonsense in my life. He lived on Mars bars and coke. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're you're looking at me. If you're watching this on television, you're looking at me, <laughs> Jim. Jim, well, well, no, I think it's okay. Thirty years later, to to admit to some of these things, because if only forty years later, if, yeah. If, if only Jim to warn off the young jockeys today that there's no need for all of that talk to me about your relationship with bob over the years please well we we shared a cottage together for a year when we were um trying to make a, a start in in racing and been great mates ever since he rode when i started training he rode my first winners um and rode for me until he retired um, and we've been mates ever since. You know, Jim, I'm glad. I'm glad you you, you can you can give us some some perspective on this because there is a danger when one reads or sees the film or even talks as I'm doing to Bob Champion to think only about his recovery from illness to win a great race. But of course, he was a, a top jockey long before that happened. What were the qualities that led to people like you putting your horses into his hands? Well, he was probably and still is, remains one of the best horsemen, um, if not the best jockey uh, of all time. He was, he, nobody was better at an obstacle than Bob was. Reared in the hunting field, um, jumped obstacles all his life, and he was the best at it there ever possibly could have been. And I'm looking at him, I mean, he's not a young man anymore, but I'm looking at him across here, and you can see in Bob's arms and shoulders, your hands, Bob, are, are so muscled. Um, clearly, you need you need to. He was strong physically as well. Cause presumably, you have to be at this game. Yeah, you've got to be. You've got to be. You've got to be an athlete as well. Um, and shaking um, his head now. <laughs> <laughs> what that he wasn't. Uh, no. 
He didn't run. He, he ran quite fast, particularly if there was a girl in front of him. <laughs> yeah, well, he's been avoiding that subject for most yeah. of the programme so far. Well, we'll get on to it now, if you like. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, you can. You can. I'll ask you about that. Jo- jockeys do have a reputation because, of course, so many parts of their life, uh, Jim, are restricted. They can't eat. They can't drink what they want. But they have a reputation as playboys. Would Bob fit into that? Oh, dear me, no. He's an absolute goody good. He was tucked up in bed every night, half past nine. <laughs> Oh, well, so you, you brought that up, dear Jim, and then you batted it back to me. Thanks very much indeed. Well, look, we just, we just needed to get a feeling, a flavour of Bob as a jockey, and I'm very glad that Jim Old was able to join us to do that. And I'm so sorry that it was so short. We're just rattling through so many issues here um, because Bob has now established himself as a top jockey. He's starting to become, uh, in the, you know, really get used to the Grand National course, fifth course in, in 1975 on Monaco Bay. And all of this looks like it's going to lead to great success indeed um, you finished third in the, uh, in the 1977 Hennessy Cognac Gold Cup a huge race on a horse called Aldeniti everything is going so well but as we'll find out in the next section life doesn't always continue on an upward curve If you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. By the mid to late 70s, your career is at a high. You're a you know, you're top j- j- jockey. You're getting good rides. You're taking part in big races. And then uh, in the summer of 1979, the thunderbolt that happens to lots of people, but it is, everyone's experience is different. You're diagnosed with cancer. When, when did you realise you had a problem? Well, it was um, in 79, actually. I'd had these numb feelings where I shouldn't have had them. And, sure. Um, it was the end of the season. I was riding one for Nicky Henderson, actually, a horse called Fury Boy. 
and I must have been a fence. Stratford. Cl- Stratford, you've got it. Yeah. And um, I'm a fence clear jump in the last fence. And I don't know what the old horse did. It was about four strides after. Must have crossed a leg or something or other, mm-hmm. but he turned over. I jumped up before it got up. And as it got up, it kicked me where he shouldn't have kicked me. And um, managed to jump on the horse's back and go and win the race. Okay. Never thought any more about it. Um, went to America the next day because I used to spend every summer in the States. Yes. For th- two or three reasons, really. One, really, was to keep my weight down. And you'd been kicked in, let's, let's use the word, we can use the word balls, I think, at this time. We can, can we? Yes, kicked I think in the we balls. Yeah. And one of them, uh, from what I read, was, was swollen. Yeah. But you took no, not much notice because you thought it was to do with the kick you'd got from the horse, you know, yeah. like, like, you, like a man would do. Yeah, of course um, it was. You know. And off you go to America. What happened then? Well, I'm in America and um, it's... F- Funny how everything happens because um, I went down, um, the weather wasn't great, so I went down to Mexico for a few days. And um, what a life! Go yeah, um, the weather, I like a bit of sunshine occasionally. Yeah. I'm having a bit of a holiday as well. And um, every morning I chat to this English girl. She wouldn't have anything to do with me in the evenings, I promise you. She was a morning girl, uh, right? Okay. Yes. And um, she was telling me she was a sister at the Royal Marsden Hospital. And um, and she was in America learning about a new chemotherapy. I didn't have a clue what she was on about, I right. promise you. Went back to Philadelphia and um, had three, two rides at Delaware um, the next day. Managed to ride a winner, but I'd started going out with a vet, a lady vet, mind yeah, you. Yeah, right, yeah. And um, having ridden the um, winner, uh, managed to get her into bed that night. Well done, Bob. Yes, I scored. Well, I didn't score, actually. Um, because, because? Because the first thing she said to me was, if I was you, I'd get on the first plane back to England and see a specialist. Well, that put me off my stroke, I well, promise you. She, she took one look at the, yeah. uh, we yeah. the champion tackle here, yeah. for the sake of, uh, of openness, yep. and said, no, you don't want to be sleeping with me. You yeah. want to be getting yourself to a hospital. Yeah, and that was it. Um, did, you, did you ever get the chance to sleep with a bob? No, that? I didn't actually. Oh, dear, I missed out. Oh, dear, oh, dear. This story goes from bad to yeah, worse. Yeah, it's terrible, it? isn't it? Life's gone terrible now. Did you ever thank her for, for having that foresight? <laughs> yes, I did. Okay, good. But not, not in the way you would have liked to then. Okay, I understand that. And so, so you come back home, you're diagnosed with testicular yeah, cancer. You know, it was very lucky because I got um, landed at Heathrow, rang Alan Thomas um, at the Park Street Clinic in London. And um, he used to patch all his jockeys up those days. Yes. Told him what was wrong, not knowing what was wrong, let's be honest. But he'd have had a pretty good guess straight away, yeah, I guess. He knew, yeah. what, he yeah. knew what he was wrong. And he said, uh, ring me back in 10 minutes and I'll have an appointment. So I rang him back and he said, go to the Royal Marsden Hospital and see a Professor Peckham. The um, appointment's been booked. Go there. And um, so I toddled along, keep thinking, I've heard of this Royal Marsden Hospital. Yeah. Um, you know, what sort of hospital it is. But um, got there, two operations later that week. Um, I'm told I've got cancer in, well, it spread two or three parts of my body. I should make the point here. We're going to talk a lot about, uh, later on when we talk about your charity, about men yeah. recognising yeah. and checking themselves for testicular cancer. But you got to yours quite late. Um, and... You had one of your testicles removed in an operation, yeah. but that wasn't the. That was by no means the end of it, because the body, the, the 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 cancer had spread to other parts of your body. Yes, it got into my lymph glands and it moved up around my lungs area, and um, so I had to have you know chemotherapy. But the odds weren't particularly good. Um, 
Professor Peckham was the doctor then, and he said, you know, I've got about a 35% chance of living. And um, thanks, if, thanks a lot. Thanks for that. a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and if you don't have any treatment, you might live four or five months. So the odds weren't particularly good. Let's be honest. And I can always remember thinking, and I said to him, "Well, I don't feel too bad. I'll go back and um, ride, and with a bit of luck, I'll get killed on the race course." <laughs> Um, and the reason I said that, I suppose, because Dougie Barrett, who was stable jockey to Josh Gifford before myself, got killed on the race course, and um, yeah. I took over from him. And I thought, well, you know, that's maybe a way I should go. And um, But I can always remember him, he said to me, Bob, you're not a bad novice chase jockey. If you're on a six to four shop, you'd give it a ride. And that's how he talked me into having the um, treatment. Then I started the chemo. And I'm not the best patient in this the world. This is lymph glands. So yeah, your your yeah, chest has yeah, been diagnosed yeah, as having yeah. cancer in it. They were pumping um, bleomycin, vinblasting, and platinum into me every day. And um, I was scared, I'll be honest. And um, the staff nurse said to me um, after the second day, oh, the oh, sick. sorry, don't stop you there. Sorry. You say you're scared. What were you scared? Scared of the treatment? Scared of the pain? Scared of the indignity? Scared of dying? What were you frightened of? I think I was frightened of everything, to be honest. Um, um, the treatment was knocking me about and, um, you know, I was petrified, I must admit. And um, the, the staff nurse said, the sister's coming round to me. And I thought, oh, God, he is a bollocking. I'm not No great. pun intended. Yeah. And um, who comes in? The girl I met in Mexico. She was in America learning about the chemo Incredible. I was having. So that's how new it was. And what a small world. I mean, you... You, you you are, in effect, on the verge of death here, Bob, um, but you're having this terribly uh, difficult um, uh, treatment. Added to the which, I mean, I don't know whether it bothered you then or bothers you now. Of course, you were almost, uh, because of the, the, the therapy you had, you were going to be sterile, you weren't going to have children. Did that bother you? Uh, of course it did, yeah. Mm. Definitely did, you know. But the thing, maybe I was very vain or something, losing all of my hair, look. That was the thing that upset me more. You lost your head, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, as you see, it came back. But if you have yeah. a look, it's going like yours. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. Well, maybe, no, not for the same reasons, I, I suspect. Um, what about uh, what about your recovery then? Um, what side effects? You, 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 you have all these operations. Um, you, you, you have one testicle removed. When you came out of the hospital, what, what kind of condition were you in? Oh, God, I could hardly walk from here to... Um, 20 miles, well, 20 um, yards away. I was so weak. I, I lost so much weight. I went down to about eight stone seven. I thought I might make a Lester Piggott on the flat, you know. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, it was hard. The drugs had damaged my lungs. I couldn't breathe very well. And, um, you know, I came out and um, I came out January the 1st after finished all my treatment January the 1st. So right. I thought, great start of the new year. Yes. Get myself fit. And I kept trying riding out ponies. Then I, you know, went to Paul Coles to ride out, and it just wasn't going. I couldn't breathe, and I thought, well, I'll go back to America. I knew the weather would be nice and warm over there, and um, I think it got me back a few months earlier, um, having the warm weather. But it was hard. I really struggled, and I remember I jumped on the scales May the first. And um, I was 12 stone 7 stripped, so then it was back to the old regime, back to running in sweatsuit, eating nothing, playing tennis in a sweatsuit. You name it, it was in a sweatsuit. But I did manage to lose a couple of stone in the month, and my first ride back over there was a winner. Well, so. well, let, me, let me stop you there and, and just to say that um, 
I know it's a long time ago now, and I'm, I'm sure you've had a lot of time to. You're probably, in some ways, I'm perhaps sick of talking about it and thinking about it. But um, many of these stories we hear about medical things, they happen to people later in life, or not always, but often later in life, and often to people who have been smoking or drinking or all the rest of it. But this happens to you uh, in the prime of your life, and um, as an athlete. Do you ever did did you think you'd been hard done by what were, what were you thinking quite apart from having to endure the treatment what were you thinking about the way your life was going can you remember I kept thinking why me well that's, a, that's, a, that's, why, that's, that's number one basic question with yeah, this, isn't it? that yeah. was it yes I kept thinking you know why me I've been pretty fit and I used to blame I suppose I look back on my career and blamed um, my eating methods or laxatives and everything I but was going to say did they ever give you is is there ever a reason why this particular cancer attacks the body. No, I don't think there is actually, and um, you know I don't think it's had anything to do with my career as a jockey. It was just one of those unfortunate things. I mean, I, I, look, I, I can I look just from my own people who listen to me regularly yeah. know that I, t- twelve, thirteen years ago, I had a life-threatening cancer, and it came to me immediately after one of a, most, a very stressful series of events in my life. And I've always put the two things together, but the medical people say absolutely not. That is a predisposition mm-hmm. that happened to you. It was triggered by. Fate, no, by you know nothing is, and it, I think it's very hard if you if you can't get a cause and effect for yourself in your in your mind. Yeah, you know I can't see you know because that season, the seventy nine season, when I got it, I was riding better than I'd ever ridden, and I was riding more winners and riding nicer horses, so everything was going my way. Let's be honest, and um, and I had had a good season. I hadn't had that many falls either, so it was just. You know, one of those unfortunate things that was a great shock to me. Let's talk about the depths of all this, because in the middle of your chemotherapy, which I think this far, I mean, it's better now, the treatment was absolutely harrowing. Um, and then you also uh, you, you, you catch septicemia, which, of course, in those days, was one of the absolute dangers of, of this kind of treatment. Um, did you ever think you were going to die from, 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 from not just from the cancer, but from the treatment? Um, yeah, but I promise you the um, treatment in those days was very barbaric. Thankfully, they're using better drugs nowadays. By barbaric, you mean? Well, you know, basically, I was so ill, sick. It was horrendous looking back on it. And they kept warning me. The times I used to go home for two or three days, be very, very careful. Don't go near anybody with a cold. Um, anything that's wrong with them, you'll get septicemia. And I did get septicemia. Which is a form of blood poisoning? Blood poisoning, and you haven't got long. No, you won't uh, live long with that, no. And, um, you know, so I did get septicemia. I can always remember my sister ringing up the Royal Mars and what could they do? They said, get him back as quick as you can. And my brother-in-law's driving me up the M4... We're doing about 140 miles an hour. And the next thing, police plods chasing us, pulled us over and um, looked in the window, saw how ill I looked, gave me a police escort to the Royal Marston. That was uh, brilliant of them, wasn't oh, it? Oh, absolutely fantastic, let's be honest. And they got me back there, about 20 minutes to spare, um, changed my blood and, um, you know, got me going again. But if I'd got in a traffic jam, you know, I wouldn't have been here. Wow. In the midst of all this, Bob, you were joking earlier on about saying, I'll just continue riding and hopefully a horse will fall on me and kill me. Yeah. You were joking then. It's, it's gallows humour. Was there ever a moment when you wished in the treatment that you would die? Well, when I got the septicemia, I thought, you know, I felt so rough and I was just virtually going away out of life, really. And um, it was, to me, it was a relief. 
I thought, you know, I'm not getting over this. Um, I'm drifting away. Can't take any more of the chemo. And thankfully, after they changed my blood and everything, I was up again and started fighting it again. Well, that's all of what we have for an extraordinary first part of tonight's edition. Excuse me, I must get myself together again. Edition of My Sporting Life. During those months in 1979 when you were receiving the chemotherapy, did you believe... Once you'd realised you were going to live, did you really believe that you could go back to being a horse rider again, a jockey? It was always my goal, let's be honest. When I was having the treatment, you needed a goal, something to come back to. And um, I kept thinking, well, I want to get back and ride Alderney in the National. I always thought he'd win a National from when he won a race at um, Leicester, um, the Silver Fox there. And I got off and said to the owners, this horse will win a Grand National one day, and um, thankfully I got it right once in my life. So you, you had the, the, the therapy, we, you've heard us talk, you talked about some of the physical things, you were skin and bone when you'd finished, um, then you went away to America, and then you were too heavy and all the rest of it. Yeah. What about psychologically? Try and t- talk to me about where you were when you realised you weren't going to die, um, but all that you'd been through, where were you in your mind, do you think, psychologically? Um, when I finished the treatment, you know, I was so determined to um, get back, let's be honest. And psychologically, um, I was worried I wouldn't be able to do it or I wouldn't have been as strong as I was before. And, um, you know, I was petrified, let's be honest. And um, then when I started riding out and it wasn't going well, let's be honest. And, um, you know, I was weak and um, just uh, I'd lost all my muscle and... Um, you know, everything, and I had aches and pains and um, getting back, and I just kept thinking, am I going to get back or am I not? And I kept trying and trying, and um, when I went to the States, I think that was the making of me. Um, you know, the weather, you know, I love sunshine anyway. You're one uh, of those people, I think, just looking, considering we've had the worst spring and early summer uh, in living memory here in Britain, and you've not been away, you're still managing somehow to be quite brown. Well, I've only got to look at the sun for about five minutes, and I'm one of those fortunate people who just go brown. So okay, I'm... so clearly clearly, it's it's, it's in your DNA that you you need the sunshine, and you've yes. often got some. Was yeah. it, what did they say to you about the, the possibility of relapse? When, when, you, when you got the clear bill of health, was that it? Was that they said that's it, Bob? We'll never see you again. Oh no, good God, no! Well, you know, it was mm-hmm. come back um, in three weeks, and then you know I went then to a month, and then to two months, and um, then to three months, and then to six months, then yearly. Um, you know, and I'm still on yearly at the moment, and um, thirty years on. So um, you know, I've, every time I go back for my tests. Two or three days before, I get aches and pains all over my body. I promise you, I'm dying. And um, I've got it, you know. And, it's psychosomatic, uh, isn't it? It yeah. definitely is. And, um, you know, I go back and um, see Dr. Helen Horridge usually. And, um, you know, he'll talk about the Cancer Trust. and he's, you know, had Which we'll come on to talk to a great deal and, about later um, on, yeah. You know, talk about anything, but my, me being better. You know, he, you know, I think he just winds me up actually, <laughs> and then he's then I have to say to him, "Am I all right or am I not?" And he said, "Of course you're all right," and that was it. You know, but um, then all these aches and pains just disappear. It's amazing. With 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 your clothes on, the most obvious uh, sign of the treatment you'd had um, was, as you say, you'd lost your hair. 
Um, now, I mean, in in the modern world, of course, a man with a with a bald head, a shaved head, is absolutely that's the way we go now. But it wasn't so for you. And tell me about the wigs. Why and what? Why did you get into the wigs, Bob? I suppose I was a bit vain, <laughs> to be fine. honest. That's fine. And, um, and I'll tell you what, um, you know, having the chemo with no hair, you, your head gets cold, I promise you. But um, it's funny, the wigs, you know, the um, wig man comes around when you're having the chemo. Do you get a choice of colour? Oh, or yes, do, I got a just... choice of colour. Was yes. it different from your natural colour? Yes, yes, it was. Oh. It was a little bit darker. Oh, very cool, yeah. The, the first one I had, and then I thought, hmm, I think I, I could fancy a different colour. So I went back into the next course of treatment. And the wig man came around and, you know, how's your wig? I said, oh, I'm sorry, the horse headed. So um, I got another one, a little bit blonder, right. and then um, went back and I managed to con another one out of him. So I came away with about three or four wigs. Do you still have the wigs, Bob? Yes, I've still got them for emergencies. <laughs> no, Don't think I'll ever wear them, no, no but... Uh, no, no. They're there. <laughs> I'd better put them on eBay or something. I mean, you, you then go on, as you say, went to America, got to feel a bit better um, and went on, uh, you know, fitness drive and all the rest of it. Um, and amazingly, you do get back into good enough shape to start winning racing. Can you remember the first race after you'd uh, come back from your treatment and the first winner? Well, I can remember my first ride. It uh, was on a horse called Double Reefed. It was in like uh, one of our bumpers we have over yes. here but this was um, basically he was a stakes horse and um, it's in America in America yeah. and um, you know professional jockeys riding them jump jockeys and um, I beat a flat jockey actually but um, looking back on it I should have won but the thing that pleased me more than anything was I was in the right place at the right time hadn't lost my racing brain I'm not saying I was 100% fit no. but then I moved up to Saratoga um, their big meeting, and I did manage to ride a couple of winners up there and one on Double Reefed again, who incidentally was the champion racehorse in America over jumps after that. So I started him off the right way. And this is only five months after you'd had the last of your treatment. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you came back to England then, um, and if I if I say you won on the 20th, 23rd of September 1980 at Fontwell, can you tell me the name of the horse? Um... It, Phys- it, physicist. Uh, yeah, ironically enough, it's called is yeah physicist uh, with all the chemicals you've yes. had in you. Um, so you do remember these important winners. It's yes, good, I remember it? physicist, and it really was a great day for Josh Gifford because it was his 500th training success, and um, Josh had always stood by me. Let's be honest, and um, I don't know if he thinks I would have lived or not, but he kept giving me confidence and. Um, always said my job was there and um, he kept his word and that was your winner of course for the first winner for 16 months a year and a half yeah you've been out out of the game yeah. um with your illness i mean an extraordinarily long time but i guess you could argue you're on your way back then um which takes us to the part of the story that uh, we're heading for uh, talk to me about the build-up to the 1981 grand national that early 1980-81 season for a start i note here i note here that you were jockey of the month for december 1980 um maybe it was simply vote who knows bob but your prize was an inscribed whip and a hundred gallons of petrol now in those days you probably took that for granted you'd love to win a hundred gallons of petrol now wouldn't you god wouldn't i <laughs> <laughs> telling me <laughs> i forget what the price of petrol was though well it, well, it wasn't one pound whatever it is now no, that's for sure that's a litre now <laughs> how did they how did they make how did that work they didn't give it to you in a big vat did they you obviously got some kind of voucher or something you got yeah? a voucher yeah. yes <laughs> tell me about the uh tell me about the the 
the building up then towards the spring of 81, um, you're back with Josh and, uh, and doing well. Had your mind already started to turn? Because you'd ridden Alderniti pretty regularly and the horse itself had been injured. Were your mind turning towards the Grand, the, the, the Grand National? Well, things didn't... After I won on Physicist, things didn't go particularly great. The horse has got the virus. First person always to get the blame is the jockey and quite a few of the owners didn't want me and... Um, Thankfully, Josh took the other lads on them and they were running just as bad for them as there was me. And um, December came round and um, the first big Ascot meeting, and I was always very lucky around Ascot, two horses came back to the track, both been off as long as myself, Henry Bishop and Kaibo. Both went and won the big races. So I was the golden boy again then. Yeah. And then from that day, a fantastic um, December and I know over the uh, Christmas period, I think I had um, nine rides over about a couple of days, two or three days, and rode seven winners and two seconds. I know Frankie did it in one afternoon, but um, yeah, National Hunt is slightly different. I thing, took isn't about it? three days about it, and, well, um, um, and I was absolutely flying. And as you said, I got the jockey of the month. Award and your petrol vouchers. And my petrol <laughs> vouchers. Um, I was doing a little bit of travelling and. Um, the the January now we're into January. Yes, weather's wasn't great actually. Um, a lot of meetings off, and um, February thirteenth came around. Alderney came back to the track, and um, you know I can always picking remember picking up the paper that day and seeing he was sixty six to one for the national and sixteen to one for the Whitbread trial that day. Well, you're back. The horse has been back from his own tri- tri- tribulations, and next here we'll be discussing the events of the fourth of April, nineteen eighty one. Talk to me about the morning of the race. Did you feel you had a great chance of winning? What kind of shape were you in? What kind of shape was the horse in? Um, the morning of the race, um, I can always remember it. it was a lovely sunny day and I always felt I used to ride better in the sun. You're mad for the sun, you are. Yeah, I yeah. love the sun. Yeah. And um, went to the course early in the morning to sit on him, do his final bit of work, you know, just really a canter around. And I'd never known him so relaxed in his life. Let's be honest, he was a horse that used to pull very hard and it was a matter of getting him settled in his races. And he was so relaxed that morning and... Um, and I'd been really confident for a long time about him winning. Uh, right. I promise you, no, I just kept thinking it was a formality. And um, you, you thought know, the horse was that good, did you? Oh, I, th- I thought he was a certainty, let's be honest. And times I used to feel the horses were certainties, they fell at the first. But, um, you know, basically, I couldn't see him getting beaten. long as he came, uh, stayed sound. That was his sure. problem. He was you know, injured prone, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah, his legs were, you know, like glass, let's be honest. And um, it was a training performance just to get him there. And, um, you know, walked the track with the governor. And um, we're walking around. The track's a little bit soft in places, a bit tacky. And so we had a plan, you know, go down the outer to begin with, then go where you like after, but just look for the ground. Well, you, you thought he was the favourite. In fact, the, the the way the race started, a horse called Spartan Missile, a very famous horse in its time, of course, was 8-1 to favourite. Aldenita was the second favourite, 10-1, to and the winner of the 79 race, Rubstick, started at about 11s. Um, and as you say, I should, just for the sake of historical accuracy, there were 39 runners in the race that day, and the first prize was 51,324 quid. 
Um, you did have tactics. You, as you say, started um, down one side, whereas John Frank and Philip Blacker and Royal Mail and others were on the inside. Um, but, of course, your tactics almost might have been a waste of time, Bob, because now we get into the race itself. My recollection of the day is that, and certainly of the review of the race, is that Aldenity had a terrible start, was just all over the place in the first three fences. Well, yes, let's be honest, you know, because, as I said before, he pulls very hard, getting him to relax. And, um, you know, the first fence, will he come up about three strides too early and landed so steep and um, thankfully paddled along on his front two legs two or three strides and the back end came down. I thought, oh, my God, if he does the same at the second, you know, it's curtains. And he went to the second, did exactly the same, but thankfully... Um, he dropped his hind legs a little bit in the fence and um, that woke him up a little bit and realised the fences were hard. The third fence at Liverpool is a big ditch, let's be honest, and um, he had a brain and as soon as he saw how big it was, he put a couple of short strides in and from that moment he was just an absolute joy to ride. I mean, you uh, then uh, I remember you describing after it then most of the things he did were brilliant. He made steady progress by the eighth turn offence, the famous canal turn that first uh, time round. You'd already lost six horses. He was in 20th, but you don't matter about being 20th at that stage, do you? Uh, I guess the idea is to just keep yourself out of trouble for the first three quarters of that race, is it? Yeah, well, you know, basically I was quite happy where I was. I must have had a better run round the canal turn than anybody else because um, two fences later, um, which is Valentine's, I jumped to the front. So I spent the next three and a half miles thinking the bollocking I'm getting the stands from the governor, I'd better start thinking of excuses. Because uh, you, well, you weren't supposed to hit the front, no? No, I wasn't supposed to hit the front until going to the last, and um, that's three and a half miles later. And, but you're uh, in the front, Bob, in the Grand National, on a horse that you believe is a, a Grand National possibility to win it, and by your own admission, once it's settled down, it's really going. There must have been a moment you thought, hey, hey Bob, we're, we're on here. Because they might, I mean, in the sunshine in Liverpool, winning the Grand National. I know you've always got the, the obstacles ahead. Anything can go wrong in a national hunt race. But there must have been a moment you thought, my God, Sam, you're not going to do it. Well, I, you know, I was in front and I'm thinking of the rollicking I'm getting. But uh, <laughs> I was happy where I was because the time I spent in America, and I used to go every summer, I had to ride work against the clock all the time. And it made me very, very smooth. And um, I had him in a lovely rhythm and he was jumping out of my hands, and I was always confident, and long as he stayed sound. So I spent my time holding him together, going to a fence, jumping it nicely, only stood him off a couple of fences, and, um, you know, everything's going fine. You got to Beechers uh, on the second on the business yep. circuit, yep. Um, a few lengths clear. Um, with three out, Rubstick, who'd been keeping you in some kind yeah. of company, fell away. I think he'd had his, his day, really, when he'd won his race yeah. a couple of years earlier. Um, that meant that Royal Mail, um, and then a gap back to three to one, Senator McCauley, Spartan Missile. Um, the, you, you come to the last fence. Alderney, I remember his tongue hanging out. So it probably a sign that the horse was tiring. Oh, he was tiring, you know. What but... did you feel when you were coming to the last fence? Because I mean, it's a problem, isn't it? You've got a good lead by this stage, but yeah. still a long way to go at Aintree yeah. after that last fence. Yeah, I was about um, a length up jumping the last, and Royal Mail, I'd had a look at him, a couple out, and um, he was just coming to the end of his tether. You can tell, can you? Yeah, 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 I had a good idea. I I thought I was always going to beat him. I didn't know where Spartan Missile was. I knew he was my 
biggest danger. Yeah, and he was some way behind, but you knew if he was still there, yeah. he's a good horse, wasn't you know, he? I just had a feeling, because I'd tracked him down to Beaches um, early on, and I'd lost him, and I thought he'd fallen, to be honest. And, right. Um, and after I jumped the last, my old horse is tired, but he was a horse that would gallop until he dropped. You know, he was so genuine. He wouldn't have quickened, but he just kept going that one pace and grinding them down and um, went to the elbow and um, Spartan Missile came to about half a length of me. You could see him now, yeah, quite yeah, I clearly. Yeah, could see him now, yeah. but the old horse put his head down and um, kept going. I, I had the advantage of the running wheel, which always helps a little bit, and I kept going and um, I ended up winning three lengths and if it was another furlong, I'd have won ten lengths. Yeah, because you, you were pulling away from Spartan yeah. Missile by this time. Yeah. Uh, was there ever a moment, Bob, in, in that long, long run where you jumped the last fence, you turned slightly right, hit the elbow as they call it and then he up the straight well when did you finally accept i'm going to win this um at the elbow i you know i you you know if there's something about uh, or you should do and um i realized um you know there was a horse there i didn't know it was spartan missile to be honest mm-hmm. after i pulled it but i knew there was a horse there and i just started going away from it and um you know i didn't really get too serious with the old horse he was trying his heart out and um he kept galloping and um he didn't slow down at all he just kept going that one pace and it's hard to make up ground after four and a half miles everyone was aware of the story before the race started in every home in britain with all due respect to uh, to spartan missile and to royal mail and those who trailed him behind you everyone was going mad what did you feel bob um, well, I couldn't hear the crowd, let's be no. honest. And, um, you know, Sir Peter O'Sullivan, the greatest commentator of all time, a great man. Um, you know, I didn't hear a thing, let's be honest. You're concentrating so hard. And, you know, basically, you know, I pulled up and then all hell gets less loose, let's be honest. And John Thorne was the first person to congratulate me. And then we had three police horses take you back to the... Um, in their way. full ceremonial uniforms. This must be a great moment. Oh, a fantastic uh, moment, you know. I've, that's the thing I remember more than anything, going into that old weighing room. And um, I how can still you, remember... How did your fellow jockeys react, given that you've been away for a year and a half? Oh, they're great, you know, because um, jockeys are Wish always... Wish stayed com- away, yeah. <laughs> yeah, jockeys are always coming back, you know, from broken legs and everything. <laughs> you know, um, jump jockeys are the, you know best friends you can have in the world let's be honest and um till you go out there you know you're the best of friends till you get down the start you start the race you're doing a job and um from when you know you don't poke up somebody's inner they'll put you over the rails but soon as you pull up you're all the greatest mates again and um you know that's the great part of jump racing after the race and everything died down, you put out a very famous statement in a written statement about what it all meant, given you had that treatment. Could you do me a favour? Will you read it in your voice for me now? The, 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 the statement you put out, it's in the red there. Will you just read it to us? This is what Bob Champion said um, through a written statement. Well, you've got your spectacles there. That's yeah, but I one. need them for Just read them now. up. I haven't heard it in your voice ever. Let's hear it, perhaps for the first time. I rode this race for all the patients in hospital and for all those people looking after them. My only wish that my winning shows that there always hope and that all battles can be won. I just hope this will encourage others to face their illness with fresh spirit. And you did you write that yourself? Um, yeah, I did. It's actually. a very basic set of thoughts, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, but 
And um, I didn't have a lot of time to write it because I had to ride in a race an hour later and one Josh thought would really win. And I got beat on that, so I got me rollicking. He no. brought me down to earth very quickly. Well, it was a lovely thought because it included everybody who... And it means everybody because we all know someone who either is ill or we've been ill ourselves. Um, let's have a quick word while we're in this part of the show about Alden Eaty himself. He, he lived to be a right old age, um, 27. What, uh, what, do you, what do you think about the horse now in, in retrospect? Well, I always liked the horse from the very first time I sat on him, um, which was at Ascot. Um, he won his first novice hurdle, beating one of the Queen Mothers, Sonny Boy, actually. And um, always thought he was a good horse from that day. Always kept getting leg problems, let's be honest, or he'd won a lot more races. And um, then after he won the National and retired... Um, he did an awful lot of work for my cancer trust and, um, you know, he helped raise a lot of the millions we've won. Bob, I mean, the fuss that that it set off, it didn't die down for months. It hasn't died down for years, has it? Um, I don't think it has, actually. i um, been very fortunate, um, you know, but... Right horse at the right day always helps. The race, of course, um, they, they showed it in America the following day, coast to coast, such was the interest in the story. The, que- the Queen Mother um, sent you, um, I can read it to you, it sent you a, a, a private telegram. I am delighted to convey to you Queen Elizabeth, the Queen's mother, warmest congratulations on your wonderful victory. Your success tonight brought to Her Majesty enormous pleasure, as it undoubtedly did to millions in all parts of the world. We were, I mean, it was just one of those stories because of your illness, because the horse was fragile, it's one of those stories that if you'd written it as a piece of fiction, and we'll talk about writing about it in a little while, people, the editor would just hand it back to you and say, no, that's a bit far-fetched, that, isn't it? Well, they would have done, let's be honest. You know, the last time he broke down, the vet said, put him down. He'd never come back. And um, if I hadn't said to the owners years before he'd win a Grand National one day, sadly, he wouldn't have been about. And um, they must have listened to me. Um, when, how long did it take for the initial storm of people? Um, I mean, you had to get back to work. As you say, you were, you were riding yeah. in the next race. But after that, did when you went home, was there? Of course, in the modern world, you'd have got a knighthood the next day. You had an open top bus parade from one of the country to the other. Did you go back to normal life very quickly? Well, it did actually. Believe it or not, the next day meant more to me than the day I won the national because. Um, when the horse came back to Finden near Worthing, where he was trained, about 5,000 people came to see him come back. Some had driven through the night to, from Scotland. Some people had come from France. That meant, I think, more to me than anything that, you know, they come from everywhere just just to see the horse. He'd done the work, let's be honest. I mean, we'll talk about the book uh, that came out of it when Jonathan Powell wrote a book called Champion Story, A Great Human Triumph. Um, in a little while, but of course, what most people, I mean, you know, I've read the book because it's part of my job to read mm. the book, but most people, everybody knows the story, of course, because uh, a few years like, a few years later, 1984, Champion, the film arrived. Um, how much did you have to do with that? Did anybody consult you for the making of the film? Um, well, believe it or not, Walt Disney was the first person interested in making the film the day after the National. Let's right. They got in touch with the um, public. This is the Disney Corporation. I think Walt himself was already well, cryogenic yeah, suspension, yeah, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, that was it, yes, for the corporation. And yeah. um, they were first interested. And I'm glad, really, that they didn't make it because, um, you know, I didn't want to be played by Yogi Bear or Bugs Bunny <laughs> or somebody like that. And um, they would have been too glitzy. And well, look, we'll come back to the film because I, I, I'm really interested in what you're saying 
say about it, but I think the first person off the block to get the story down, and I'd like to say uh, thanks to the wonders of modern technology, we can join now. Of course, he's your friend, but also he wrote the book Champion Story, A Great Human Triumph. It's Jonathan Powell, the author. Hello, Jonathan. Hi there, how are you? Very, very good indeed. Um, I have to say, any money you got for writing this book, Jonathan, it's almost under false pretenses, isn't it? Because it was such an amazing story. How could you, how could you have bettered it just by being a writer? Uh, well, he did all the hard work. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think Bob's ever read it, but he, he's not. He's not so very he says. Good, he's not very good with joined up writing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, all, all joking aside, um, it was actually quite. I'm sure it was quite a, a task to set yourself because to actually tell this story in a way that doesn't make it seem fanciful must have been quite a, a, a trick for you. Um, not really, because Bob and I were the best of friends long before right. he was very successful, really, and. I was therefore very much aware of his illness from the start, he, and we were with him through the bad times. Sometimes I'd drive him home from hospital uh, in, in between treatments, and he'd stop and say, hang on a minute, he'd be sick by the side of the road, and then he'd do it again 20 miles further on. He was dreadfully ill, uh, it seemed to me, more from the cocktail of drugs that saved his life than from, from um, the cancer at times. But... So I was there all along. So in a sense, it wasn't too difficult to do because I had seen it close up. Do you... Uh, well, the times we've heard from Bob during the course of this long programme, uh, Jonathan, where he wasn't entirely sure that he either was going to make it or really wanted to make it. And I know that, you know, it's a cycle that people go through when they're having these traumatic illnesses. Were you always sure he'd make it? Um the honest truth is I didn't know. I prayed and hoped he would. We all did. But uh, I had some interesting conversations with him, um, and they went along the lines of, look, you know, if you do this treatment, you'll be fine afterwards. You just forget about riding, forget about racing. There's a million other things you can do. And, you know, if you pull through and you you live and you can't ride, it's not the end of the world. But to him, it was the end of the world. He, I mean, he's incredibly stubborn, obstinate uh, Yorkshireman, and, and he said, I only want to live if I can ride. And he had this absurd, impossible dream that he would ride and win the Grand National on Alderneity. And, and then halfway through all his treatment, the poor horse had such a bad injury to his front forelegs that it was touch and go whether he could be saved. And that was when he was at his lowest ebb, and you couldn't get him out of a really depressive mood. But he was always determined that he would survive, and should he survive, he was always going to ride again. And that is the, the miraculous part about the story, because if you have the kind of treatment that he had, he was a, a very fine professional sportsman at the top of his powers before this happened. Uh, and it's pretty amazing that he was able to, to ride again at the highest level. But when he first started back... Let's not forget, it was very difficult. Uh, the chemotherapy that he had affected his hands and feet to the point that he couldn't feel anything. Now, that's fine if you're not a professional sportsman, but if you've got to slip reins and use your feet to, in the irons to, uh, as a pedal and a brake, uh, you're in big trouble. And certainly when he came back here after his spell in America, it was a struggle. And he would admit to you he wasn't riding as well as he had in the past. And... Some of the owners started bitching about him to Josh Gifford, uh, but in John, Josh Gifford he had the most steadfast friend and supporter who, who, if anybody complained, Josh would say, well, look, I train these horses, I want him to ride them. And um, once he got through that spell, got 100% fit again and back in the groove, he was every bit as good as before. But I'm sure he will tell you just as well. It was a very difficult period, and, and only because he was so incredibly determined 
uh, yeah, John, that, uh, that he got there. And of course, all of that is brilliantly written and reflected in your book, Champion Story, A Great Human Triumph. And uh, thank you for joining us. And I honestly think he should do you the honour of actually reading it. Thanks very much, Jonathan. <laughs> Um, Thank you. We've got a few seconds to talk about the film in which John Hurt played you. Um, did you like the film? Yeah, I really did, actually. Um, I think they did a terrific job. Um, the scriptwriter and I did a little bit together, so people think I didn't do anything, but I uh, spent a lot of time with the scriptwriter. And um, he got on with the script, and um, Lord Grade and Embassy did it. And what a professional to have Lord Grade. And Carl Grade. Davis's music is absolutely stunning. And then Carl stunning. Davis, and um, they did produce a record sometimes that both Elaine Page and Shirley Bassey sang. And they put that out. They both got into the top 20, but if one of them done it, might have got into the top 10. Um, but, um, you know, the film, you know, having John Hurt play me, that really pleased me, actually, because um, I like John as a person. Uh -huh. And um, also, he's such a true professional. That's what I like about him. Every film he goes in, he gives 150%. Last evening, my partner told me that she, she's a bit younger than me, she'd gone to the cinema to see it at a formative age and had cried from three minutes in right to the very, very end. You won the National in 81. You, you rode on for a little while after that, I mean, a very short while, because uh, the, trans, the, 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 the charity, the cancer charity you'd set up, the Bob Champion Trust, I mean, it's taken up. It's starting to take up so much of your time, and I'm going to go straight away to tell you if you want to read the amazing story. It's at www.bobchampion.org.uk. But I mean, we've done lots about charities here on this program. I have to tell you, and people are very pleased. And they do great work. But when I look at the figure of nearly 15 million pounds that you've raised over the years, I mean, that is an extraordinary effort, um, and it's gone into. First of all, how do you do it? And secondly, what have you used the money for? Well, basically, you know, we've put on so many functions. We did a job up at Liverpool this year, Legends Race, but I've ridden Alden Eiji from Holyrood Castle to Buckingham Palace. You name it, we've seemed to have done it. The poor old horse. The poor old horse. He was great, actually. That's I'm on my own now without him. But, um, yeah. you know, we've got a... In September, we've got an evening with um, John Joe O'Neill, which at Cheltenham, which will be 28th of September, if anybody wants to come mm -hmm. along. be a great evening, and um, we had one with Sir Henry Cecil last year. It was a fantastic evening. Sadly, um, we lost him, and um, what a great man he was. Um, well, luckily for him, he got one of those cancers that there still there is no hope with, you know. And, and this is all part of the same. The, the progress has to be made on a lot of fronts, doesn't it? Yes, of course it does. And um, so we built a research laboratory up the Royal Marsden and... Um, Colin Cooper heads that up, so we built it, we fund it, and um, we, you know, we started with testicular cancer, and we've taken that from about 35% to 95%. Well, I was just going to say, our, our own Jason Cundy, who works on the station here, yeah. had testicular cancer, he talks about it all the time, and I think the, 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 the trick is, and the difference between when you had it, Bob, 35 years ago, yeah. and now is that at least there's an awareness, and that's been the great breakthrough. Oh, of course it is. And now we're concentrating more on prostate and colon cancer. And it's not a nice thing to say, but... Um, one in seven men are going to get prostate cancer. You have cancer. to go and get your bum felt after a certain age, don't you? Yes, of course you do. That's all there is to it. That's all there is to it. There's no yes. other way of describing it. No, that's the truth. And, and um, the doctors don't care. It's their job. And, you, you, and you, you know, you'll feel better when you get the all clear the next day, yeah? Of course it is, yes. Yeah. All right, well, listen. Um, you, we also, I mean, your own health has been pretty good, but I, I understand you've had a couple of heart attacks. You're, you're still with us, though. You're looking pink to me. I've got to be honest, but I'm no doctor. I'm still, um, you know, pretty good, let's be honest. Um, I was very fortunate, you know, I had my heart attack the first one 
about 10 years ago, well, no, 12 years ago, and um, a lot of us who had had my chemotherapy, we'd lost a lot of um, our arteries. The drugs had destroyed them, and the doctor was telling me that a few uh -huh. had died of um, heart attacks, and I was one of the lucky ones. And two years, no, 10 years to the day, um, and virtually the time, I had another one. And, um, but let's be fair, Bob, they breed them tough in Yorkshire, don't they? Yeah, they breed them tough, but um, I was very fortunate. I knew what what it was, and I did something about it straight away and put the spray out and and um, didn't do the damages, but I had stents put in. And I eat sensibly now on the whole, and um, I do take exercise, go to the gym. Well, listen, you're one uh, remarkable champion. Another is your sister, Mary, um, who... Uh, Apart from anything else, having helped nurse you through your, your trials and tribulations, uh, she's the former mayor of Wooten Bassett. Indeed, she's the mayor who's seen it transform from Wooten Bassett in tragic circumstances in many ways, of course, yeah. to Royal Wooten Bassett. I am delighted to say that Mary joins us on the line now, and you can talk to her as well. Hello, Mary. Hello. Say hello to your sister. Hi, Come sis. On. How are you? <laughs> I'm fine, thank you. I mean, sitting here for the last two hours with Bob, I mean, it's clear that, you know, if... Uh, and I'm sure you've been through dark places with him, Mary, but what's clear to me is that he has the kind of personality, um, there's a great deal of uh, determination and depth when you talk to Bob Champion, and if anybody was going to be, go through the trials and tribulations that were g given to him, it, it would be him. Yes, yes, it would be, but he had to have a kick up the backside a few times. Go on, tell me about that, <laughs> seriously. Well, he'd come downstairs for breakfast in the morning and it would be... Poor me, poor me, I don't feel well. So I used to say, get upstairs, get dressed, washed and dressed, and he would do that and he'd come down and he'd feel so much better. Mary, uh, it's, you know, I, I can hardly think about one of my own brothers or sisters being that ill, and you're making a uh, laugh about it now and tough love and all the rest of it. How hard was it for you? Um, because Bob was a, a single man, I know you had a great deal to do with his recovery. How hard was all that? It was very hard, but we never showed Bob how we felt. It was very difficult for my children, but they were absolutely amazing with him, and they kind of kept him going. So tell me, tell me, why, why were his nieces and nephews, why was it so difficult for them, because seeing, seeing their, their, their uncle in such a condition, yes? Well, he had no hair, um, he had different problems, he was always sick, and, oh. but, you know, they, they were wonderful with him. Um, and what about what about your own experiences that day in 1981? Then, when when your brother arises from his deathbed to win the Grand National? Well, I had a feeling he was going to do it because I dreamt for a week before that he won it. Really? <laughs> yes. And um, were you there, Mary, or did no, you watch the I TV? No, I I'd, I'd rather watch it on the television. And all the way through the race, I was saying, "You've gone too soon. You've gone too oh, soon." Oh yeah, it was a terrible performance. I admit that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was. <laughs> and what did that you feel, it. though, when you saw him um, heading for, when he finally, um, so, you know, saw off the challenge of Spartan Missile and was heading for the winning line? Oh, it was absolutely amazing. It was amazing. My mother, she wasn't with me, but I know she was in her kitchen hiding because she couldn't bear to watch it. Um, and, and, Mary, I must ask you about this business of being the mayor of Wooden Bassett. How did that come about? Well, I was a town councillor and I was just voted to be mayor. Um, and you've, yeah. uh, it's obviously been with the with the uh, coffins returning from our various uh, wars. Uh, it's become a focus of national attention, hasn't it? It has, it has. But we're a wonderful community in Wooten Bassett. And now you're now you're Royal Wooten Bassett. We're royal, but to every to all of us, we're just Bassett. Okay. And what about? Uh, um, no, no, I don't mean the last word. The last word on this show to your brother. I couldn't say anything nice about him. You're, you, Yorkshire, <laughs> you Yorkshire people, why can't you just say you love him and he's a great man? Well, no, 
because we can't do that. It's just not what we do. Yeah. I, 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 I really feel like therapising you. So do you want to say that she's a great woman and you love her? She's a great lady. <laughs> say you love her. Go on. He's all right. He's a Well, I, I, I don't understand this between the two of you, but it's great to hear your voice. Thank you, Mary. All right, then. Thank you very much. Oh, they won't admit they Bye. love each other. They are, they are terrible, the tykes, aren't they? Um, Bob, among many, many things that have happened to you since then, you got the MBE um, in 83 for your services to horse racing. But uh, more recently, on um, things like um, uh, in 2001, you, you, you appeared on Countdown. What was your role on Countdown? I was the chap sat there, you know, in the corner the, coming up with things. The, the um, were you good at it? I was all right. did a week of it, so I survived. Six, six yeah. episodes, yeah? Yes. Yeah, I enjoyed it actually. Yeah, and um, and, and more recently, I mean, obviously, let's be fair, Bob. Um, I, get, I dare say you get asked to do a lot of these celebrity things because, of course, you are Bob yeah. Champion. You eventually did, I suppose, the charity edition of, of Cash in the Attic. Yeah. Yes, I did that one. Yes. What old tut do they find in your attic? Um, a few things. I went down to a local. Um, you know, second hand shop and bought a few things for it. <laughs> really? But I made a profit. Yeah, that's how it goes, <laughs> is it? Um, do you, what, what souvenirs other than your memories do you have of that day in 1981? Um, I've got a, a cup, a Grand National Cup. I think that means the most to me. And, yeah. You know, like a vase type of thing. And um, yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. I look at that occasionally. Because, of course, the, the silks and things that they get used for the next race and the next race after well, that, yeah, I suppose, well, when the owner comes out. Well, yeah. well, they're the owner's silks. Let's yeah. be honest, you, every owner's got their own colours and um, you know they stayed with the owner this might seem like a weird question but yesterday I happened to be in the National Gallery looking at uh, at some pictures and there's a fantastic picture by George Stubbs of some very oh, famous horse from the past yeah. I mean, it's a gigantic yeah. picture yeah. Um, and it's just in beautiful of the horse yeah. um, have, you, have you have you ever had your portrait painted um <coughs> Not my actual portrait, I don't think, but um, there's a hell of a lot of prints about of yeah. me on the old horse. And, yeah, there is some portraits of um, the old horse jumping I beaches. just wonder, because people love painting horses, don't yes, they? they they're do. so graceful. Yeah. And yeah. because I think, unlike human beings, because we wear clothes and some of us get yeah. fat, for particularly thoroughbred horses, all of that physical power and beauty, muscle and bone and sinew, yeah. it's all on the surface, isn't it? You can see it all. Oh, good God, yes. And, you know, these top-class... Um, painters, you know, bring out every muscle in a horse. They're fantastic how they do it. Um, and do you do you still love horses, Bob? Yeah, of course I do. You know, I know you live in Newmarket, so yeah, you'd be you'd be, you'd be hard pressed if you didn't like yeah, them. Yeah, I see one or two about every day. Um, no, it's I've always been brought up with them all my life. Let's be honest. You know, started with the ponies and hunters and every type after that. You and know, the, the... even when I worked on the farm, I used to deal with cart horses and um, you know. Horses apart. The um the the, the talk sport connection, of course, is that uh, uh, I know you're a neighbour of and a friend of our own Mickey Quinn, who this summer, of course, I'm doing the mid morning show with throughout the summer. Um, but of course, it's actually his missus that you're you're more connected with, yeah. Yeah, well, um, she's Karen. the daughter of one well, of my best friend when I was riding, Bob Davies. It was he a was great champion jockey, jockey yeah. a fantastic jockey. He was three times champion, I think, and um, a very very hard man to beat. Let's be honest, and a you know, did everything right. And I um, wish you'd come to me before you allowed that relationship to develop. I'd have told you about Quinn. <laughs> I promise you, I'd, I'd, I'd had you drop at the pass. Yeah. Listen, Bob, it's it is extraordinary. We've got a few more seconds to go on this show. I'll come back to you and just a real round up an amazing life and an amazing story that you've told um, with such excitement and I think um, clarity over the past uh, several hours. A reminder again that if you want to find out about the Bob Champion Cancer Trust, just log on to www.bobchampion.org.uk. 
It's an amazing story. Fifteen million pounds raised for charity. Bob, you're so closely um, associated with Alden Eating now. I must ask you, because you've been a horseman all your life and a fan, I guess, of the sport as well. Um, are there other horses that you've fallen in love with? Either ones you've ridden or ones you wish you'd ridden? Flat horses, steeplechases, whatever. What other horses do you love? Well, um, I suppose the first horse I really um, loved was um, Arkle, let's be honest. Yeah. I still think he's the greatest racehorse I've ever seen. Then you get your Desert Orchids and, you know, one of my yeah, favourite horses. Yeah, but they didn't write whole songs about Desert Orchids. No, they, they, they didn't. Did about no, Arkle. That's true, yeah. And um, Kaibo, of course, he was a good horse. Aldeniti, of course. And then, you know, you've good flat horses, see a stars. Look at how good he was. And oh. Nijinsky winning the... Th- um, triple crown yeah. you know ridden by Lester Piggott you know always be my idol always will be and when you see one of these beasts take off like Frankel recently recently you know, I'm, I don't know anything about the yeah. game um, I'm just told um, and I'm, you know that he is statistically the best horse that possibly ever lived and when you watched him over the last um, about sort of 600 yards of a race oh sorry the, the last further on the half of yeah. a race you think oh my god the power is just a, I mean do you still get, do they still take your breath away oh good god you know Frankel last year every race for me he got better and better and better and you know I should think he's the best I've ever seen on the flat anyway yeah. and, and and I would stick with um, Arkle and maybe Sea Pigeon as well another great horse okay um, and uh, let me ask you then uh, just a very simple question uh, you have been so close to death on a couple of occasions falling under horses being mm. ill then being ill from the treatment for being ill then your heart attacks and um, you probably had a chance to think about this Bob how would you like to be remembered um, just somebody that's tried his best, really, and um, that's all. And, um, you know, I always used to try my heart out as a jockey, and hopefully I keep trying to raise money for my cancer trust. Well, that's that maybe even answers my next question, which is, I mean, given that you've, 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 uh, you've, you've flirted with, with the old Grim Reaper a couple of times, but you still, I'd say, to me, you look in good shape, and uh, there may be many years ahead of you down the road. What, what do you still have hope for in your life, Bob? What are you still hoping to achieve? Well, I hope to keep well, let's be honest, and yeah. um, that's the main thing, and live to a good old age. Um, but, you know, the Cancer Trust means an awful lot to me. You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk Sports My Sporting Life with Danny Kelly. Thanks for listening, and make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, and Spotify for more top Talk Sport content. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 